And thank you all for being here today. Uh, we are at the end of a three-part series called It's Not That Complicated. And this three-part series is about the Bible. And as I've mentioned throughout this series, I'm having a little bit of fun with these titles here because clearly the Bible is a complex book. It is not exactly an easy read. It is complex. It doesn't work that way. The Bible is more involved. But I do believe that the Bible was given to us to be read and to be understood. And so sometimes you can shy away from reading the Bible, say, you know what, I'll just count on somebody else to explain it to me because it is complicated and I don't have that kind of time or I'm just not, listen, I'm not a great reader and I'm not a great student and whatever it is, but listen, this book was given to us to be read and to be understood. And so my not-so-secret goal in this three-part series is to make this book more accessible to you. You can do this. You can read this. You can understand this Word of God. Part one of this series, we talked about the fact that the Bible presents itself as the Word of God, as the authority on who God is, as God's revelation to us. And people have different opinions about what the Bible is, and people can say that the Bible is the Word of God, and some people have a fairly low opinion of the Bible, and they say, well, sure, it's the Word of God, but is it really infallible? Eh. Can we really trust the history? Eh. Now that people have a high view of the Bible and say, well, yes, this is the Word of God. If I'm going to believe some of it, I'm going to believe all of it. Yes, it is the Word of God, and it is reliable, and it is the authority. And that's what I believe, and that's what we believe as the church. We have a high view of Scripture, that it is the authority. I remember years ago, I was asked a question. I was asked a question by a seminary student, and he said to me, he said, are you really going to base how to live your life off this 2,000-year-old book? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it really is the Word of God, yeah, yeah. I mean, what else? What are my other options? What are my other options? You got a better one for me? And so, yeah, if it's the Word of God and we believe that it is, then it is worth orienting our priorities and our lives and following the commands. It's worth orienting our lives around what this book says, if it really is God's revelation to us. Last week, we talked about the canonization process. I, last Sunday, I gave you a history lesson that nobody was asking for, and quite frankly, nobody wanted. But we talked through the canonization process of the Bible, how we got this book. And the reason that I gave you that history lesson last week is because I want you to know there is a process for how we got this collection of texts. Because this is one of the ways that nowadays, Scripture is undermined. There's all these attempts to undermine the authority of Scripture. And one of the ways that Scripture is undermined is by attacking the canon. Well, weren't there other books? And weren't some things edited? And wasn't there this kind of refining process? And can we really trust that this is the Word of God? And last week I told you, well, listen, there is a, a history, and maybe it's kind of a boring history, but we can trust that there has been a canonization process, and the same God who gave us the individual text, the same God who breathed these individual 66 books into existence is the same God that orchestrated the canonization process. And that's not just blind faith. You can trace throughout history where the books came from and how they were collected into our modern-day Bible. Today, we're going to talk about how to read it, all right? This is where we've been headed this whole time, how to actually read the Bible, because you can have opinions on what the Bible is, and you can have lofty ideas about what you think of the Bible, but you have to actually read this thing. I've shared with you many times in the past that I grew up in, in church. I was a church kid, and there's something that I learned about reading the Bible as a kid, <clears throat> something that I learned about interpreting Scripture as a kid. Uh, I was taught that there are many ways 
to interpret the Bible. Many ways to read the Bible. That's something I was taught as a kid. And that's true. There are many different ways. Any given passage, many different ways to approach a passage, walk away with your interpretation of that passage. But then there's something that I discovered as an adult about the Bible. That there's only one correct way to interpret the Bible. How does that land with you? I mean, does that sound kind of arrogant of me to make that statement of all the different ways that you could possibly interpret Scripture? There's only one correct way. Well, just logically speaking, doesn't that make sense? I mean, you can't have all these variations of meaning and for them all to be valid. There's got to be a correct way to read the Bible, a correct way to interpret each passage of Scripture. That's something I learned as an adult, and that might be the most controversial thing I say in this whole three-part series, that there are many wrong ways to read the Bible, many wrong ways to interpret, but there is there is a right way to read the Bible. When I was in my early 20s, which wasn't that long ago, give me a break, okay? When I was in my early 20s, I took a Bible study at a church, and we started out this Bible study, and we were going to be reading most of the Bible over the course of a school year. And we were taught this method for reading the Bible. And I'm going to tell you exactly what that method was. We were taught this method. And so whatever the passage was, we were told the first thing we do is read it fast. Just read it fast to get an overview. Then, read it slow. Take your time with the words. And then, ask yourself the question, what does this mean to me? And I heard this method taught, and I thought to myself, wow, that's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? Just to read it fast and to read it slow, and say, hmm, what does this mean to me? How is that going to help me arrive at what God wanted me to know in this passage. That's not much of a method at all. I mean, you're going to leave it up to me to figure out what this means? Give me some help here, folks. And so I'm going to attempt to give you a method to read the Bible that is perhaps a bit more, I don't know, scientific and logical than that. I'm going to attempt to give you that. Because when you read the Bible, here's what I want for you. I don't want you just to say, okay, I've done my, you know, I've done my reading for the day. Let me check the box. I did it. They were great. No, I want you to understand what you've read, because I believe that God wants us to understand what is written in the Bible. So many of you have already peeked ahead. You've looked at your bulletin. You saw this insert. So I'm going to talk through this process. Here you go. How to read the Bible. If you want to understand it, if you want to get it right, here's how to do it. Before you begin, you can take a look at this insert now. Before you begin to read, before you read, there's some things you have to do. You have to create a plan. I believe in this. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. You've heard that. Haven't you heard that? Yes? So have some kind of a plan, right? And this is just so basic, just so practical. No, here's the book I'm going to read. Here's how long I'm going to spend reading. Whatever the plan is, just have a plan. There is an abundance of plans available and apps that you can use in reading. Read the Bible in a year. Read the Bible chronologically in a year. Read the New Testament in a year, whatever it is. So many different approaches that you can take. It doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, the simpler, the better. Just have a plan. I'm going to read one chapter a day. That's a plan. I'm going to read one chapter a day, five days a week, taking weekends off. Okay, at least it's a plan. Have some kind of a plan. I'm going to spend 20 minutes, and however far I get 20 minutes, however much I can understand in 20 minutes, that's it. Okay, great. Just whatever your plan is, just have a plan. Next point here. This is before you read. You want to start with the text, not an agenda. That's very important. That's very important because sometimes we do this thing, and Christians do it, and I think most of the time our heart's in the right place when we do it, but we're trying to prove something, yes? 
And so we have an agenda. I'm trying to prove something, and so I'm going to peek through the scriptures, and I'm going to try to just find some way to validate what I already believe, right, to have an agenda. Well, let's not do that. Just let the text speak for itself. Start with the text, not an agenda. I threw out some fun terms for you in your bulletin there. You thought I ran out of fun terms last week? I used a lot last week. I got a couple left over for today. Exegesis versus eisegesis, yes? When you go to Bible college, they teach you all this fun stuff. Exegesis is this thing of starting with the text. Well, let's see what the text says for itself. Eisegesis is you start with an agenda. You start with a point that you're trying to prove. Well, no, let's start with the text. What is the text trying to tell us? Exegesis. That's just fun, isn't it? Exegesis. This is all before you start reading. Answer the five W questions. When? When was this specific book or passage written? That's very, very helpful to know. Now, as you go through these five W questions, okay, when was this book written? You try to learn some more information about the Bible. How am I going to find all this information? I have all these questions to answer before I even start reading a passage. Yeah. Well, if you have a study Bible, most, if not all, of these questions will be answered for you. And so I showed you last week a couple of options for study Bibles. These are my two favorite. There is the Zondervan study Bible, some great general notes in the Zondervan study Bible. You open it up, and before you read the specific book of the Bible, it will give you all these info. It'll answer most, if not all, of these questions for you. There's also the Ryrie Study Bible, another fantastic resource. A good study Bible is going to do a lot of this work for you, okay? Got it? All right. So the first question we're asking is when? When was this specific book or passage written? You're reading from the Psalms. And maybe you're reading one of David's songs that he wrote. You think, well, is there some kind of context in the timeline? When did this take place? Maybe it happened just after David suffered some kind of hardship in his life. To know when, when was this passage, when was this book written? You don't need to know the exact date, but it is very helpful to know the timeline. When in the timeline is this taking place? Because the Bible, the books of the Bible, they're not laid out in chronological order. So you need to have a sense of when was this specific book written. Next thing you need to know is what type of book are you reading? Bible's filled with different types of literature, different types of book. There's history books. There's biographies. There's books of prophecy. There's letters. There's wisdom. There's all these different types of books. So know what type of book it is you're reading. This matters, and I'll tell you why. Let's say you're reading a, a book of history like Genesis or Exodus or even the book of Acts is history. You're going to read about things that people did that's what history is. Here's some stuff that people did. Well, not everything recorded in history books was right, yes? And so you're going to read, maybe in Genesis, maybe in Exodus, you're going to read about these stories, and you're going to read about men, men of the faith, patriarchs, who had more than one wife. And you're going to say, well, look, the Bible says you can have more than one wife. It's like, no, no. Gentlemen, do you really want more than one wife? Isn't one enough? I mean, one's enough. One's plenty, yes? No, no, no. The Bible isn't saying you can have more than one wife. No, it's saying people did have more than one wife. Wives. All right? They had multiple wives. And guess what? It never worked out. Okay? So it's a history book. You read the book of Acts, which is a history book in the New Testament. Here's how the church got started. The Acts or actions of the apostles. The Acts or actions of the Holy Spirit. You're going to read some stuff that the apostles did. Not everything they did was right. It's a history book. There's this occasion where Peter gets together and says, okay, there's 11 of us now. There used to be 12. Judas is gone. We need to have 12. We're supposed to have 12. So let's draw straws and see who we can elect as the new apostle. It's like, well, no. That, that happened, but it wasn't, that doesn't mean it was right to happen. 
You know, meanwhile, God had already chosen a 12th person, had chosen Paul to become that 12th apostle. So you see why this is important, to know what type of book that you're reading? Give me this, just something. Does that make sense? Okay, thank you. I know you guys love this kind of stuff. All right, here we go. So you're asking when, you're asking what type of book. You have to ask who wrote this. Most of the books of the Bible, we know who they were written by. There are some that we're not sure of. There are some options, but we're not sure. So who, who did the writing of this book? Now, you could say, well, God did the writing. It's his inspired word. Yes, but who was he speaking through? Which person was he speaking through? Know who wrote this. And know who were they writing to? Who was the original audience? And so you're in the New Testament, and you're reading a book called 1 Timothy. And they go, okay, well, who wrote this, and who were they writing it to? This was written by Paul to Timothy. That's important to know. Okay, this is the Apostle Paul who was prolifically planting churches, writing to his son in the faith, not his biological son, but his son in the faith, somebody that he mentored. So know who wrote it and who they're writing to. You notice that so far, we're not even asking the question about application. That comes later. That's a mistake that some of us Christians make is, what does this have to do with me? Well, don't worry about that yet. We're not worried about that yet. When was this book written in the timeline? Is this Old Testament or is this New Testament? Is this history? Is this wisdom literature? Is this for me? Was this for the Israelites? What's going on? To know when it was written, to know what type of book, to know who wrote it, who was the original audience, and to know why. Is there a special occasion for the writing of this specific book? Moses wrote the first five books, or at least he oversaw the writing of the first five books of the Bible. And he was very concerned. There was a pride on preserving the history of the Israelites. There was a why behind that. You look into the New Testament. So much of the New Testament is letters. They're called letters, or they're called epistles. Epistles, that's another fun word to say, especially in church. What did he just say? Epistle. It's a letter, okay? So a lot of letters in the New Testament. Thank you, three people, for laughing. That's great. All these letters in the New Testament. But there's usually an occasion for why these letters were written. And usually... When you're reading Paul's letters that he wrote to churches, usually they were up to no good. They did something wrong, or they were misguided, or they were misinformed. They were living out how to be the church in a wrong way, and Paul has to correct. And so knowing the occasion, again, a good study Bible is going to answer all these questions for you. This is before you start reading, yeah? To know, to have this plan, to start with a text, not an agenda, and to answer those five questions. And... I'd recommend, before you dive in, pray. Pray. This is God's revelation to us, so pray. God, what do you have for me in this? Show me yourself in this text. Show me. Reveal something to me in this passage. Now, as you read, you should seek to answer the question, what was the original author communicating to the original audience? What was the original author communicating to the original audience? The reason that this is in bold is because I know that none of us are going to memorize this whole thing here. If you take away one point today, take this away. If you remember one aspect of how to, to read the Bible and how to interpret it correctly, here's the one point to memorize. Is what, ask this question as you read, what is the original author communicating to the original audience? That's the starting point. That's where you begin. Okay, what's happening here? What is God trying to say through Paul in this passage? What is the original author communicating to the original audience? Again, you're not, don't make it about you. Make it about the original author and the original audience. You can make it about you later, okay? What's happening here? As you read, read each passage literally and normatively. Normatively. 
You know what that word means? It means just what it says. Read it normally, right? And so let me give you an example of this, what I'm talking about. Um, you're in the Old Testament, and you're in the section of Minor Prophets, and you're reading the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah, the book of Jonah, it is a biography about a man named Jonah. It's also a book that has prophecy in it. So you're reading this book, and in context, this book is presented as literal history. This is something that happened. And so, if a book is presenting itself as history, then read it literally as history. That's what that means. Now, some people struggle with this. It's like, okay, this guy got swallowed up by a big old fish or a whale or something, and I'm supposed to believe that. Now, listen, this isn't an everyday occurrence, and the fact that this happened is supernatural and miraculous. But it's presented as history. Jesus, in the New Testament, refers to it as history, refers to Jonah as a real person, not a myth. And so, if it's presented literally as history, then read it literally as history. Does that make sense? Read it literally, but normatively. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, says, I am the vine, you are the branches. But is Jesus a vine? Like he's literally, am I supposed to take that literally? Well, come on, read it normatively, okay? You know he's using figurative language here. When figurative language is apparent, go ahead, take it, take it figuratively. You know that there's something else behind that. But when it's presented as literal, presented as history, presented as fact, there's no need to over-spiritualize the text. Yeah? So if it's presented as literal, take it, take it literally. Some people struggle with that when they get to Genesis. I mean, that's the very beginning. How many days did it take God to create everything? Am I supposed to take this literally? It says six days. Well, <clears throat> here's where we introduce another fun fact. Your Bible, and you already know this, is in English. The original text was not. Old Testament was Hebrew. New Testament was Greek. And so if you go back to the original Hebrew of Genesis and says, okay, God created the earth in six days, well, then you look up that fun term, days, and you realize that in Hebrew, that could mean six 24-hour periods, six days as we know days, or that term in Hebrew could refer to six time periods. So what are we supposed to believe here? Well, literally, in the original language, it could have meant either six days as we know 24-hour periods or six time periods. What do you guys think? Here's where <laughs> we bring in another fun element. Let's not build convictions where we don't need to. Let's not build convictions where we don't need to. Because if I'm reading this literally, the, the author is in mind, it's Moses, he's communicating history to his own people. He says six days, it could be literal, it could be time periods, we don't know. My God, the God that I believe in, could have created the earth in six seconds, yes? And so we've got two options here. From a scientific standpoint... You could say that the world is very, very old, and maybe that's the case. And so if that's the case in that term, it's, it's Y-O-M-E in Hebrew, yom. Maybe that means six time periods, or maybe it was six 24-hour periods, six days, and the world just looks a lot older than it is. Is it worth building a conviction over? It's an important thing to note about the Bible. Yes, you can read it the right way. There is a right way. There is a right way to interpret, but you're not always going to get the specifics that you might want. So let's not build convictions where we don't need to. Agreed? All right. That wasn't too bad. All right, here we go. <laughs> and so you're in Genesis, and you're trying to do this thing. You're trying to read it literally, but normatively. You're trying to read it literally. And by the way, I'm not expecting you to go and learn the original languages. 
I had to study those languages in Bible college, and I had to study those languages in seminary. I don't speak fluent Hebrew, biblical Hebrew or biblical Greek. I don't. And so here's what you can do. If you want to learn the languages, if you want to be more familiar, here's what you can do. You can spend the money and the time going to Bible college and or seminary, or for $1.99, you can download an app on your phone called eSword. Does anybody have that, eSword? I have it. eSword. Great. And that will give you, you go through the passage that you're reading, and it will show you. Click on the word, and it tells you, well, here's the original meaning in the original language. Isn't that nice? So it's up to you. You can go to seminary, or you can spend two bucks on that app, all right? Your call. And so we're still in Genesis, and we're trying to do this thing of reading it literally and reading it normatively, and then we meet these first two people named Adam and Eve, and there are plenty of people inside the Christian community and outside the Christian community that look at the story of Adam and Eve, and they say, well, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to take this literally, but were there really two people named Adam and Eve? Well, how was it presented? It's presented literally. There was a guy named Adam and a woman named Eve. And as you go forward in Genesis, you read that their names are listed in a genealogy that leads all the way through, all the way up to Abraham. If you go forward into the New Testament, Luke then has his genealogy and refers to these people as two real people. Jesus refers to Adam as a real person. And so this information is consistently provided or presented as literal. And so I'm going to take it literally. Yeah. Here we go. All right. Stuff, I mean, it's not that complicated, right? It's not that complicated. All right, we're going through. We're reading it literally and normatively. As you're trying to interpret what each passage means, apply Occam's razor. You know Occam's razor? You've heard of this thing? You know this? Like the most logical answer is probably the answer, yes? The most logical conclusion is probably the right conclusion. Have you heard of Occam's razor? It's not Arkham's razor. I wanted to write Arkham's razor. That's something else. It's Occam's razor. And so here's this idea. It's like, okay, whatever makes the most sense that's probably the correct interpretation. That's probably it. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, you go into the book of Acts, you read Acts chapter 20, you learn about this guy named Eutychus, and Paul is preaching in some kind of setting, and, and there's Eutychus, and he's sitting by a window, and Paul, he's just going on and on and on. Do you know what that's like when a preacher just goes on and on? It's like, goodness gracious, wrap it up, we got stuff to do, yeah? So this guy Eutychus is there, and he falls asleep, and he falls out a window, and he dies. And Paul goes down, <laughs> and he dies. And then Paul goes down, and there's a miracle, and he's resurrected. Fantastic. Well, so I was in a Bible study once, and a woman said, well, this, was this guy Eutychus, was he, was he slain in the Spirit? Was he overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit? And it just took him over, and he fell. I'm like, I think he was just tired and fell asleep, right? So let's apply Occam's razor. Do you know what it's like to be sitting here, and I'm just going, oh, I just want to go to sleep. It's just he fell asleep. Some of you have fallen asleep. By the way, the next time that happens, the rest of us are just going to get up and leave, and you'll wake up like, where did I go? Won't that be fun? Can we all do that next time? Okay. But the, the obvious solution, the obvious answer, that's probably, that's probably the answer. If you, next point, if you are uncertain, all right, you've done your homework, you've answered the five questions, you've, you know who wrote this, you know why, and all this stuff. If you're reading a passage, and you're not sure, how am I supposed to interpret this? Well, you can seek out how the passages has been, how that passage has been interpreted throughout church history. That can be very helpful. Last week when I gave you that history lesson, you didn't want it, I talked about the church age, yes, so we're in this church age now. It starts with the apostolic period and then the age of the church fathers. And so if you're reading a passage and you're like, I'm not sure how to interpret this, you can hop on Google, 
You can ask your question there, but you know how the internet works, right? <laughs> it's a minefield. And so you can get somebody who wrote an article three years ago, two years ago, two months ago, and say, well, here's my take on this. Or you can dig back and say, well, wait a minute. What about during the apostolic period? How was this passage understood then? What about during the time of the church fathers? How did they understand? How did they interpret this passage? I'll give you an example. If you make your way to the book of Revelation, don't be afraid of Revelation. Read, read the book of Revelation. Don't be afraid. You make your way to the book of Revelation, and there's so much in that book that is overtly symbolic, overtly figurative. Yes, but in the midst of all this symbolism, there are some specific dates, some specific numbers, some specifics that we are given that don't seem figurative at all. One of the things we're taught in the book of Revelation is there's this period of a thousand years where Jesus reigns on the earth and Satan is bound for a thousand years before he's released once again. And so a lot of people read that and say, well, how do I, you know, it's, it's this details in the midst of this book that's so filled with symbolism and figure of language. How am I supposed to interpret this? Well, what do our buddies, the church fathers, have to say? What about during the apostolic period? How did they? Did they take this literally? Did they take this figuratively? You go back to the time of church fathers. You go back to that generation after the apostolic period, and they all took it literally. Second generation after the apostolic period, they all took it as a literal thousand years. And so what they thought, listen, the church fathers and what they wrote and what they understood, I'm not saying it's perfect. No, not at all. But what they believed, in my opinion, carries weight. Does that make sense to you? It carries weight. If this is how the first generation after the apostles understood something and interpreted it, that means something to me. If it's how the gener second generation and the third generation and the fourth generation, the further you go, the more consistency we have, the greater the case. Does that make, yeah? Yeah? Give me that, yeah? Okay. I know this is very dry, but this is important stuff. So if you're uncertain, you're reading a passage, how, how is this done? You can go back, you can do that research and figure out, okay, well, how, how has this passage been interpreted in the past? Or you can ask your pastor, which feels like an easier option, yes? If you have a pastor, you can ask your pastor. Now, full disclosure, you come to me with a question about the Bible, I might not know the answer off the top of my head, right? But we can look for the answer together. We can look for the appropriate interpretation together. After you read, you've read your passage. After you read, I would encourage you to contemplate, pray, meditate, contemplate. How have you been transformed by what you have just read? Bible is alive. Right? There are other books that inform and then educate. The Bible is supposed to transform. It is a transforming knowledge. How has what you read, how has it changed you? Has it changed your understanding about God and priorities? And how you think about other people? Has this passage changed you at all? And then you can seek out how to apply what you've read. In other words, you can end with the issue of application. Don't start there. That's the temptation is to start there. End with how do I live this out? Have I just read something that I can live out? Have I just read something that applies to me? If you're reading a history, maybe you're in the book of Leviticus, which is everybody's favorite, and you're reading this history and all these laws that God gave Moses to give to the Israelites, and you're reading this, and you read about how you know, the people at that time, they weren't supposed to eat shellfish, and you've just read that passage, you're asking yourself, how am I supposed to apply this? And you might realize, well, there is no way. <laughs> maybe it's not about you. Or then you're in the New Testament and you're reading Jesus' command to love one another and you think, okay, how do I apply this? Well, there is an application for you. Don't start with the application and with the application. And so, there you go. You've got it right here. You can put it in your Bible. You're all set. Now you know how to read the Bible. Got it? Yeah? Good. Good.
just that easy, right? It's not that hard. It's not that hard. So why don't we do this? <laughs> if it's that easy, why don't we do this? Well, there are a lot of reasons. One reason is it does take time. It takes effort. It's not a casual read. It takes, it takes effort. Whenever something takes effort, we're, we're tempted to say, well, I'm not going to do that. One of the reasons that we don't read the Bible this way is sometimes we're starting with an agenda or we're starting with a concept, a concept about Christianity or a concept about church or a concept about Jesus or a concept about God. We have an a uninformed or misinformed concept of Jesus or of God or of church or of Christianity, and we take that concept to the Bible, and we're tempted then. When you read a passage that doesn't align with your preconceived notions about what something should be, you're tempted to adjust what Scripture says in order to make it fit your worldview. You know what I'm talking about? You know, I believe that you have this preconceived notion about who God is. You have these beliefs about God, and you believe that God would never, never, the God of the Bible, the God of love, he would never command anyone to kill anybody else. And you have this idea. You have this concept of God. And then you read the book of Joshua, and God commands Joshua to wipe out all these people, kill all these people to take their land. And you're thinking, ooh, how do I interpret this? Because it doesn't fit with my preconceived notion about God. Should I adjust what the text says so it fits into what I believe? Or do I adjust my beliefs to fit what the text says? See? This is why this gets difficult. Why is it difficult for us to, to interpret the Bible and to, to read it correctly and to walk away with a correct understanding of what God is revealing? Well, it's because we're all biased. We are all biased. Every human being, we have a bias. And maybe you're reading something about money in the Bible, like, ooh, I don't like this. <laughs> or maybe you're reading about sacrifice and Jesus calling us to lay down our lives. If we want to follow him, that anyone wants to be his disciple must pick up their cross, lay down their lives, and follow him. And you're thinking, well, that's a, that's a bit much. And so we have a bias to try and turn down the volume on those passages or maybe adjust. Well, Jesus didn't really mean that, yeah? How many sermons have you heard in your lifetime where is a preacher trying to say, well, Jesus said this, but kind of meant something a lot softer? No. We all have this bias. Or maybe you're reading what the Bible has to say about sexuality, and you're thinking, well, this doesn't fit what I want to believe about sexuality, so I'm going to kind of adjust what Scripture says to align with my beliefs. That's the temptation. Why are you guys looking at each other? What are you doing? <laughs> that's the temptation. We all have this bias. So that's, that bias can prevent us from walking away with the correct interpretation. We are all tempted just, just own this. We are all tempted to cherry-pick our way through the Word of God. We all are. I am, you are, we all are. So if we're really going to walk away with what God wants us to know, what God wants to reveal to us, we have to eliminate that bias. Acknowledge it and then eliminate it to really walk away with what God wants us to know. Sometimes, now this is a wonderful thing, but I have to address it. Sometimes we Christians, we have such a strong desire. We want to make Jesus more appealing we want to make Christianity appealing. Isn't that a great desire? We want to make church appealing. I think that's a wonderful desire. We want to be, people to be attracted to Jesus. Yes, that's a great desire. But sometimes, sometimes that desire in and of itself can lead to our, our misinterpreting of the Scriptures. Well, I don't like this stuff Jesus says about hell, so I'm going to have to rethink how, what he really meant here in order to make Jesus more appealing. I don't like what Jesus has to say about sacrifice. You know, if I present it that way, that's going to be very unappealing to people. So I got to kind of adjust what Jesus, Jesus meant something else by this. All this stuff about sacrifice, Jesus meant something else. No. I mean, that's, that's something that a lot of us struggle with. 
I want to make Jesus more attractive. Well, just let Jesus be Jesus. Just let Jesus be Jesus. And that's a real temptation for people like me. I want you to get to know Jesus, but here's what I've discovered. If I try to, like, sand off the rough edges, then the Jesus I'm presenting you with isn't the real Jesus. You need to get to know him for who he really is. And the God of the Bible is, is complex and is a God of love and a God of wrath, but he has to be both. He's a God of grace and God of compassion and a God of judgment. And I can't subtract certain things from God's nature because I want to make him more appealing because then, then what have I done? All I've done is present you with a false God. And so we have to be very careful. And, and yes, like a lot of what I've said here, this isn't like spiritual stuff. A lot of this is just a scientific approach to trying to figure out what God has for us. But if we're going to walk away with the actual revelation that God wants us to have, we have to be very careful of the bias that we all have when it comes to reading through Scripture. Here's what's up. My question for you today is to ask you, what is informing your beliefs, all right? Whether you're a Christian person, whether you're not a Christian person, whether you're not sure where you stand on all this stuff, what is informing your beliefs, your big beliefs, your beliefs about God, your beliefs about what to pursue, your beliefs about how to treat one another, your beliefs about eternity, your beliefs about salvation, all the big stuff, your beliefs about heaven and hell. What is informing your big beliefs? There's a lot of stuff in this world, friends, that we can afford to be wrong about, but then there are things that we cannot afford to be wrong about. All those big beliefs, what's informing your beliefs? If you're letting someone or something that's not the Bible inform your beliefs, then you are in danger. You're in danger. There's no substitute. Here's what I'm saying. There's no substitute for you reading your Bible. I can't be your substitute. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to all this. But I can't be your substitute for actually spending time with God's word and allowing himself to reveal himself to you through his word. I can't be your substitute. For some of you in this room, this practice of reading the Bible, this discipline is what you've been missing in your walk with Jesus. And so here are your options today. You can walk out of this space feeling guilty about the fact that you're not reading your Bible, that's one option. Or you can start. You can start reading your Bible. A chapter a day, a few verses a day, whatever it is. And so, those are, which one do you want to go with? You know? <laughs> do you want to feel bad about it? Like That's my goal up here through this. I want to make you feel bad about the fact that you're not doing it. No, why don't, you just, why don't you just start? Just start doing this. Maybe this is the this. Maybe some of you, this is the, you were so dead. This, you were on fire. You were reading it every day, but you've gotten away from it. We'll get back to it. Instead of feeling guilty about it, just get back to it. Get back to reading the Bible because our beliefs, our beliefs as Christians, and specifically as Hope Community Church, our beliefs about all this important stuff, they need to be based on what Scripture tells us. The Bible is written to be understood. God wants to be understood. God wants to be known. He wants you to know His will. So let's not be content to just hear some sermons about the Bible. Let's not be content just to have some convictions about the Bible. Let's actually commit ourselves as a church to reading the Bible. Let's pray on that. Father God, we thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us. 
you have revealed yourself through the creation, through this world. We can look at the world around us. We can look at the complexity of nature, and we can learn a few things about you. But beyond that, God, you have given us a specific revelation in your word. And so, Father, you know our hearts, you know our lives, you know what each of us are struggling with, and we all got stuff. We all have bills to pay. We all have jobs to go to. We have just a lot of stuff that fills up our lives, and it's so tough, God. It's so tough to make reading your word a priority. Even if you work in a church, it's hard to make spending time with you in your word a priority. And so, Father God, I would just ask that you would change our hearts, change our attitudes. Give us a willingness to dig into this book not with an agenda, not trying to prove anything, but just trying to get to know you better. Let us approach the Bible with that desire in mind to get to know you and get to learn about your will for our lives. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.